in terms of money or in terms of fame or in terms of certain residence in uh, Sunset Boulevard or where have you and how they crumbled after success because they thought that success was it and success was not it. They thought that having uh, um, multiple sexual partners it and it was not it. Having uh, a certain amount of um, fame was it and it turned out not it. And Cynthia Heimel was contemplating on that or not contemplating, commenting on that and said she's an atheist and she said that um, something that of course hard to repeat but this is what she says we'll quote it because I want you to hear it um, she said that it is as if God is playing um, a, a practical joke on them granting them what they wish for and giggling to see what they will do when they get what they wished for because really what, when, they, when they got what they wished for they found that it was not worth living for it and we agreed that man's search for fulfillment will always be connecting with something beyond the physical, beyond this world, because anything that will be within the limits of this world will not reach, will not get you to fulfillment. And then we went into the third topic, which was that man's search for identity. Every single one of us is looking for a meaning. Every single one of us is looking for fulfilling life. And every single one of us is looking for an identity. I'm, I want to know who I am, what I stand for. And we said that there, this life, this world that we live in, there's usually two ways. There is the Eastern way, where people are kind of claimed to be a person according to their family, according how important, to, how beneficial they are to their family. So in the, in the Eastern culture, your identity comes from your family. So you're the son of this man, you're the son of this family. You are the grandson of this uh, owner, the grandson of this farmer. Or you are the father of this uh, uh, great kid. You are the father of this great soccer player. You are the father. So you're either a father or a son. Your identity comes from the family, from how beneficial you are to the family. But the Western is the opposite. The Western tells you, don't worry about your family. Your identity comes from who you think you are, who you want to be, whether you want to be um, uh, uh, um, identify as a black man, even though you're a white man, if you want to identify as a girl, even though you're a boy. It doesn't matter. It, is, it depends on what you want to identify. And we agreed on that both scenarios don't work because if you apply the first scenario where you identify according to the family, this will always put pressure on you and this breaks people often. On the other hand, if you identify with what you feel, what you feel changes from one day to the other and changes according to the culture that you live in. So we live in a culture now that glamorizes homosexuality and if there is some notion in your mind of that and the culture pushes it, then you'll identify with that because the culture pushes you to identify with a certain look. The opposite. If the culture is in Iraq or in some kind of uh, um, Middle Eastern uh, war zone where the culture identifies with uh, somebody who kind of uh, uh, self-detonates himself or who, somebody who likes cutting people's neck, you will identify with that because this is the culture that pushes you to that. So if you want to identify, when you find your meaning or your identity according to what you feel, I want to tell you that what you feel is often wrong. And we came back to the identity that the true identity is not what you think you are. It's not something that you achieve, but something that you receive. Something that Christ, somebody who is in the knowledge, in the authority, can put on you. And we said that Christ has put on us something that cannot be changed, unchangeable identity, the identity of being a son, 
something that does not change. And that's why we call, that's why one of the most important things in the prayer of our Father who art in heaven, we always talk about this prayer, we say, how, why is this prayer different? Why is our Father in heaven so revolutionary in the way that Jews, comparing to how Jews used to pray? And people say, ah, oh, because Christ said that you do not, do not repeat the words in vain, or uh, Christ said that you don't just uh, uh, um, uh, pray without a heart. The crucial part in the prayer of our Father is the word our Father, because this is your identity. He's changed your identity from a slave to a son. And the obligations of the son is because of the sonship, not of performance. What I mean is that your identity you don't gain by doing things, becoming the son of God. Your identity makes you or forces you to be the way you should be, to pray the way you should pray, to worship God the, sh the way you should worship God, because not through these things you will gain an identity. No, identity has been given to you by grace. But you worship, you love, you give, you sacrifice, you become selfless, not to gain identity, but as a result of identity. You don't do these things to become a son. You're already a son. But because you are a son, this is the way you behave. So your performance is not giving you an identity. You perform as a result of knowing who you are. And this will never change. You will always be a son. You will, you're a sinner, you'll be a son. You are a righteous person, you'll be a son. And if you're a righteous person, you'll be a son. The righteousness is not going to be a show. It's going to be from the heart. And if you're a sinner, you'll be a son because it's not becoming of me as a son to be a sinner. And that's why the identity that we get from Christ is unshakable. And last week we talked about freedom. Freedom is something that everybody seeks. Everybody seeks. And we, we, we said that the world around us has got a wrong concept of freedom. We talked about Thomas Hobbes, who's a philosopher. We said that Thomas Hobbes said that freedom means behaving with no obstacles because we intrinsically have no obstacles inside us. And we talked about um, Elsa. We said, Elsa said, no, no, no wrong, no right for me, I am free. And the freedom of this world, and in the cartoon world with Frozen, is that freedom means I have no boundaries. I can do whatever I want to. I, I, there's no right, there's no wrong. I am free. And we said that this cannot be true. This is an unworkable frame for freedom. Because from a physical point of view, there's no such thing. If I say you're free to eat what you like, but unfortunately you have got diabetes, then you're not really free. You have to choose. You have to choose between freedom of eating whatever you like and dying from diabetes or chopping your leg with gangrene, or freedom to say no to food and having the freedom of enjoying longer life with no sickness. So even in the physical world, there's no real absolute freedom. There's freedoms. You have to choose something and restrain something. This is, so it's not what I want whenever I want the way I want. Even on a metaphysical or um, an emotional level, there's no absolute freedom. So even in something metaphysical as love, loving somebody, a man and a wife, uh, uh, marriage, there's no absolute freedom because marriage itself, commitment itself implies that I'm not going to do whatever I want to because I, I'm not alone. I have to see what she feels. I have to ask what my husband feels. It's not about authority. It's not about control. It's about the love. The love implies commitment. Commitment means that even though that you love, you have to worry about what she thinks, what she wants, what he thinks, what he wants, what, what his, his opinion is. So even metaphysical level, there's no absolute freedom. And we agreed that the real slavery is slavery of sin. We talked about the people from 
Israel, the Jews when they were, were lost in Egypt, in, lost in, in Sinai, and how they were, even though that they were free from the tyranny of the Egyptians, they still had this mental setup that they were still free. They, were, they wanted to go back to becoming slaves again because slavery was the easy way. Slavery, going back and being whipped was the easy way because they had food for free. And they say, why did you bring us here? I wish that you would have brought us, wouldn't have taken us out so we can be eating the meat and, and eating all the veggies um, in Egypt. And then God told them, okay, if this is what you want, you want to be slaves, I'm going to give you the meat and, that you have been craving for. And they kept eating meat until they died out of craving. And we said that there is a place, some, some cemetery in, um, in Sinai, it's called the cemetery of the people who craved, who said only if. And this is the real prison of every single one of us. Only if. If there's something that you think to mind, only if I can get that. If it's a, a girl, or if it's a boy, or if it's a relationship, or if it's a certain amount of money. If this is only if that cripples you, this is what is the real unfreedom. This is the real sla slavery. The real slavery, we said, the sin has got two problems. It makes you weaker. So it's not just that you're going to separate yourself from God. But the more you sin, the more you become weaker. So your ability to reject sin becomes less. And your tolerance, just like any addiction, your tolerance becomes more. So if you're, you kind of step the line and you had the audacity to make something wrong and you felt guilty about it, the more you do it, the more you want to do more of it. If by mistake there was some kind of image on the, t on the TV or an image on, um, uh, on the computer or a movie or something, and initially you said, no, no, this is not the right thing, it's not the right thing for me as a Christian to watch something like that, the more you do it, the more you become addicted, the more you become tolerant, and the more you feel, that's okay, there's nothing wrong with that. And that's why now, even in, in our church, talking about uh, um, sexual immor immorality, people living together, people uh, um, um, spending the night in nightclub, it's something normal. I'm not saying that it's good to judge, I'm saying it's not good to become normal about it. It is not normal. This is a sin. Um, and we reached this, the, 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 the final uh, um, um, conclusion on that day that the real freedom is the freedom of the glory of the sons of God, where you become the son of God and this in it, the real freedom. The freedom to be the son, where you're able to overcome sin through being in Christ, so being crucified with Christ, so having, through having the Holy Spirit inside you. So today we are talking to, it's not really the fifth item as much as it is the point that brings everything together. So we, we talked about the search for meaning, the search for fulfillment, the search for identity, the search for freedom, and now the search for hope. Hope is every single man, or every single man, human being, is a being where hope is intrinsic to its survival. Every single one of us needs hope, needs to live through hope. With that hope, life becomes too dark to continue. Um, I told you at the, at the, in the first, I'll keep that here just in case you can see. I mentioned in the first discussion the book by Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Reason. And I told you that Viktor Frankl was to, 
remember the talk about Viktor Frankl? We said that Viktor Frankl is a psychologist. He was in Auschwitz, which is like a Nazi camp. And in this Nazi camp, he wrote some notes and he realized that some people who had meaning in life managed to survive, managed to live, managed to withstand the oppression of the Nazis. He also had something else. He had a friend called Felix, and he was talking about hope as well. This guy, Felix, had a dream. He was dying. He had, I um, can't remember, it's a medical condition. I can't remember. I'm sorry, I forget my conditions. I'm getting old. Uh, so he had some kind of medical condition, and he was dying. Um, and he had a dream that on a certain day, 23rd of March, 22nd of March, he will be let free. And he had this conviction and this hope that on the 23rd of March, he will be let free. So um, all of a sudden, after this dream, this guy who has become just like a stick and was not interested in eating and was keen on bones, sleeping all the time, about to really die, all of a sudden, he started picking up, he started working, he started becoming uh, uh, full of life because he was convinced that on the 23rd of March, he will be let free. And every single day, he was telling them, I am sure, I, I know that I'm hoping, but I've got this certainty and hope that on the 23rd of March, I'm going to be let free. So Felix, in the two, three months since the 23rd of March, since December until March, he was sure that he was going to be let free. And this guy... His life, his look at life, physically, mentally, psychologically, all changed. And all of a sudden, news came to Auschwitz camp that the situation, the war situation, got worse. So the Nazis got the upper hand after um, the, the, the people were, the, the, Nazis, the Nazis were starting to retreat and they were kind of uh, losing the battle. They got a little bit of a few uh, wars or a few battles, uh, successes, and it did not look like they will be released. So when news came to the camp and to Felix that it is unlikely that they will release any prisoners, he started getting depressed again. So this news came on the 22nd of March. On the 23rd of March, he was just waiting and nothing happened. On the 24th of March, he died. So he's survival, his health, his outlook on life changed completely when he had hope. But when hope is gone, there was no reason to live. And he died. And not just from uh, um, Viktor Frankl, but there is a very strong uh, medical link between being able to fight cancer, being able to survive um, a heart attack or a stroke, just based on how what your prospect is, what your hope is, and you can see that, and I see that every day uh, at work. You can get two patients coming in, and they both have breast cancer. One, and they both probably almost the same stages of breast cancer, and one that is really optimistic and tells you, "Ah, oh, doc, uh, I know that there's heaps of treatments around. I know it's stage two, but I know that chemotherapy works, and I've got, I know that I've got some hormone-sensitive breast cancer." And I know that there is something that's gonna work. And I'll say, it's breast cancer. I know I'm gonna die. I know that within the next three, four months, I'm gonna have some metastasis. And you can see how the people that are hopeful 
will be able to fight and people that are um, full of despair, they are unable to fight. One of the things I was stuck into one of the doctors that worked with me, um, it's amazing how people that are hypochondriacs, and we see quite a, quite a few of those, do get the stuff that they're worried about. I see that all the time. I don't, I, there's no explanation. There's no medical explanation for that. But I have patients that come in and say, I've got lung cancer, I've got lung cancer. Okay, are you smoking? Yes, I'm smoking. Stop, stop, stop smoking. I'm going to stop when something happens. But I think. So they come every three months, six months, and they do get lung cancer. I've got, I think I've got a, 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 this breast lump or this, uh, and they're obsessed about it. Then they come for examination, they do ultrasound, they do mammograms. And this people that are hypochondriacs get stuff. So don't be hypochondriacs. That's, that's the take home <laughs> message today. So dismiss things. Now, really, uh, on a serious note, Really, what I want to tell you is the essentialness, if there's such a word, the essentiality of living with hope. Now, let's take that one step further. So, if just simply having hope in being able to overcome a disease, overcome an illness, makes a difference to your perceived present, How far would this perceived present be if you've got an ultimate hope? And that's what I want to take, talk to you about today. That for us, we have an ultimate hope that nobody else has. And the word hope in the word hope in, in English is a bit weaker. In Arabic, there is there are two words. And I think, that, and even even in Hebrew and in Greek, so the English is only the, the handicap. So, the, in hope, so we we'll say, okay, um, I hope that Rome finishes on time today. Or is, is he going to finish on time today? And then Matthew say, I hope means I don't know. He never does. So, uh, so hope means I don't really know. So this is the word hope, but in 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 um, in Arabic the word is raget. And in Hebrew, it's called Alphys, and, um, and uh, in, uh, in, in Greek. In Hebrew, it's a word which I can't remember, but it means a tight trope. So, Raget in Arabic, or Elphis in Greek, means not really, uh, I don't know if he's going to finish. Raget means I hope and I know in the same So, it's a, it's a mixture of hoping and knowing, hoping and being sure. And this is what we have in Christ. So this ultimate hope in Christ is not a hope of somebody who doesn't know, who's hoping, who's keeping his fingers crossed. It's a hope with surety, a hope with faith, where I know I'm hoping, I'm waiting. So one is I hope that I'm not really sure. The other one is I'm sure and I'm waiting for it to happen. But the word is still hope. But it makes a big difference. Hoping on a physical mere level, not just even for us the importance of hope, even I'll tell you an experiment, a cool experiment that was done uh, in the 50s uh, on mice. You might have heard of this experiment. The guy called Kurt Hitchner, this Kurt Hitchner brought some mice. Okay, he wanted to see how much, how, what hope does mice have? Which is uh, probably he had some grant and he wanted to burn the money or he had some kind of sadistic feeling, wanted to kill mice, but anyway. So he got the mice and he threw 12 mice 
into a basin of water. Two of the mice died straight away. They swam, they dived, they found that there's no uh, escape, and they just flipped over and died belly up. And nine of the mice kept swimming around, hoping for some salvation for nine hours. So I thought that, that's interesting. Why did these two kind of lose the, the hope straight away, and the other ones kept going, hoping to find a platform to run on, to stomp on? So, and these were domesticated mice, as in kind of lab mice. So he got some um, wild mice, he just went down to the garden, and grabbed some wild mice, and put him, he actually got 34. And he threw the wild mice into the same basin, same dimensions, and 34 of the wild mice out of 34 died within half an hour. They tried, 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 because they're used to freedom, they couldn't find anything, and they fluffed belly up, and they died. So there's something here, there's something, these people that have not been in this environment cannot find hope. Let's look into that. So what he did was he grabbed um, about 100 mice and what he did is the first group of mice he put into the sink, the basin of water, the same basin, and let them swim to see how things are. And the majority of it, 94%, they died within nine hours. Some people, some, some mice within five hours, some mice within six hours. And then the other 50, he threw them into the water and within an hour from them swimming, trying to, to climb onto the, 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 the walls, which are slippery walls, he took out and put him on his hand for 10 minutes. Just hold him on his hand for 10 minutes and put him into the water again. And he found that the ones that were held for five minutes after an hour of being in the water continued swimming foodless for three days. For three days continuing. Hoping, hoping for what? Exactly, hoping that somebody like was done before Somebody will grab them and put them in his hand and they will be able to come out. Just on this five to 10 minutes of rest on his hand, the mice continued swimming for three days. Three days continued trying because of the hope of this period of rest. So on a, a mere mortal level, on a, an animal level, there's always this hope that salvation will take place, that we will cross the level of this world, that I'm going to go beyond where I am. So we all have hope. Sometimes the hope is limited, as in, I hope that Friday can come as quickly as possible because I've got plans for the weekend, or I hope that I can get to this or get to that. And unfortunately, all this hope ends up with disappointment, just like we talked about disappointment in the wrong meaning, disappointment in the wrong fulfillment, disappointment with the wrong freedom, disappointment with the wrong identity, there's always disappointment with the wrong hope. There's always going to be disappointment. One of the philosophers said that unless there is hope in transcendence, we are like people coming and going, going like people that are fidgeting, waiting for death. A very grim kind of notion, but this is it, because if this, the hope is in what we're doing every day. My hope is merely that I'm gonna be able to 
go away on the weekend and have a holiday or go travel and we I spend the whole year from January until December because of these three four weeks that I'm gonna go and spend in Europe or it's gonna be exactly like I'm fidgeting way there. So this philosopher atheist said that the only hope that stands the test of life is hope that is beyond this life. One of the have you heard of Tolkien, J.R. Tolkien? He wrote what? Lord of Rings. Lord of Rings. So J.R. Tolkien was big friends of who? Who writes similar books? C.S. Lewis. They were best friends. So actually J.R. Tolkien, the one who wrote Lord of the Rings, was Christian when, when C.S. Lewis was atheist. And J.R. Tolkien is the one who kind of led C.S. Lewis to Christianity with other things. But anyway, so... J.R. Tolkien, of course, wrote a lot of things. Everybody knows a lot of things. And it was a big hit at the time. People were lining up, even in the 50s, lining up just like people line up today for the new uh, kind of uh, version of, of Apple. They were lining up just for his books. They wanted the first edition. So they used to line up all night. So the people were surprised, why do people line up for your books? They asked him, usually people, when they are kids, they like fairy tales. When they grow up, they want to, 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 to read real stories, stories of relationships, stories of love, stories of life and death, these type of stories. He said that, and he was a philosopher, really philosopher. If you look closely at all the rings, you'll find lots of philosophers in there. So he said that every man is hoping for five things. He's looking for overcoming death. He's looking for going outside time, so he's talking about why his fairy tales are so popular. So everyone is looking, every one of us is hoping for overcoming death, being to go outside time, being able to communicate with people or with beings that are not human, as you can see in Lord of the Rings, being able to love without parting, and finally hoping in the ultimate victory of good over evil. And this is the hope of every single one of us. Now, we have that. Yes? Does it matter that some of these hopes are viable and some of them are inviolable? Which one are inviolable? Um, withdrawing from time. Yes. And overcoming death. Yes. Uh, I assume inviolable. They are viable for all of us at a certain moment. Which is the moment of what? That's my question. When does this happen to all of us? As, as Christians. As Christians. When do we overcome death? When do we love without separation, without, parting, without stopping to love? When do we communicate with beings that are not human? When do we see the ultimate victory of good over evil? And when do... When do we do all of that? So I guess that's the hope that transcends the earth. Yeah. So when does it happen? Eucharist probably is in the stage of getting there. But this ultimate of victory over death, when does that happen? When we die. And? Resurrection. Resurrection. Exactly. Exactly. So resurrection is something that Christianity offers that explains all these ultimate hopes that we're all looking for. We're all sad because we love and we part. Our, our 
family or with loved ones, they die, we separate. We are sad because we know that we're going to die. We are sad because we see every day evil triumphing over good. We celebrate because we're limited to certain communication. Even though that we want to communicate with the transcendence, we want to see the angels. We cannot do that. We said that every day we are bound by these things. And then Christianity comes and tells you all these hopes is in the resurrection. And that's why resurrection is something unique about Christianity. It is the ultimate hope. It's the ultimate manifestation of hope. The hope of you being able to go outside time, become timeless, overcome death forever, being able to love everybody in a very special way. So you might come and tell me, but Buddhists, Muslims, lots of even kind of new age spirituals, they believe in life after death. So what's special about Christian resurrection? Coptic Orthodox Christianism. What's special about it? I'm asking you. Why is our hope of resurrection, our surety of resurrection, what we believe in resurrection, according to us as Christians, different than all of those? It's Give me two differences. It's happened before. True? Beautiful? That's a fantastic thing. We're going to talk about the next point. You beat me to the next point. That... Christ's resurrection has led to our resurrection. So for us, we have got evidence that's going to happen. Well done. That's an absolute thing. I didn't even kind of write in the notes, but this is an absolute point. But what's special about us? That's my question. Why is our how is our resurrection different than the concept of the resurrection in Islam or in Buddhism or in New Spirituality? Give me two, three points. Why is it? So in Muslims or Buddhists or New Age, they tell me, yeah, no, no, we believe that, that we will kind of come back after death and we're going to be beautiful spirits and we're going to be enjoying being spirits in, in the universe. How are we different than them? What do we postulate as unique to our resurrection? They believe in reincarnation. So it's a continuous life. So I go from one, um, one body to the other or one, one creature to the other. So why is that different than Christianity? I mean, it's of course, it's very different. But we what's continue the same life after death. Yeah, you continue the same life, which means that our resurrection is personal. So this is impersonal. So I might be a lizard, maybe, or I might become a hippopotamus. Or so how is that me? So it's an, impo it's an impersonal resurrection. So, okay, um, maybe I, I hope not to be a lizard. But <laughs> what difference is going to be making for me to hope to become not a lizard? Is that the ultimate hope of not becoming a lizard? So it's an impersonal thing. But like Miriam said, I'm going to be me. I'm going to be me. So it's a, a personal resurrection. So this is special. I'm going to be myself when I, when I come back to life. What else? Why is Christian resurrection different? Besides the fact that it's documented, it has happened before, and there's a fact, it's another time today to see, to, to kind of prove that it's a fact, but it's a fact. And the fact that the Christian resurrection is personal and other models are impersonal. They believe that it's you. They believe that you will rise, but the problem with the Islamic idea of resurrection is that 
in Christianity, in, in Islam, the resurrection involves rising and continuing to do the stuff that you did not do on earth. Marrying 700, having lots of food, having lots of palaces, and all this and that. So in essence, sometimes we think of resurrection as compensation. You've been a good man, you rise from the dead. You've been righteous, you wake up again. You've been a good person, then death does not overcome you. So we always think of resurrection as compensation. It's like payment for being a good boy. Here's payment. But in Christianity, resurrection is not compensation only. It is what? Something that starts with R. Reward. Reward is compensation. <laughs> it's restoration. Restoration means that you have become the better you. Not instead of lusting over one woman, you've got 700 women. So this is not restoration. You're not making a better person. And that's why there's a difference between the restorative concept of resurrection in Christianity and resurrection in Islam. What else? One single thing I want you to tell me that is specific to the Christian thought of resurrection in comparison to everybody else. It's definitive. It's definitive. It's definitive. How do you think that theirs are definitive as well? What do you think? We believe in the resurrection of the Christ. Dead. Yeah? Dead. Christ. We believe in the resurrection of the <laughs> Okay. I'll tell you a statement and tell me what's wrong with the statement. When we rise, we're gonna be like spirits, like angels in heaven, with Christ forever. What's wrong with that? The body as well as the Exactly. Exactly. We believe in the resurrection of the body. That's crucial. So it is personal, it's restorative, and it is a bodily resurrection. So we're gonna rise with our bodies. It's not gonna be our flesh, fleshy bodies, but it's gonna be our it's gonna be a luminous body, an honored body. But we're gonna be rising with our bodies. The whatever yes. Oh, I don't understand that. It's good that you picked me on that. So lots of people think that when we rise from the dead, we're just gonna be like spirits. We're gonna be looking the same, it's gonna be just like luminous. Um, spirits flying a representation of how we look you're going to be you're going to have a body a luminous body an honorable body a, go a bodily body but you're going to have a body you're going to have because our humanity is made of body soul and spirit so when we rise we're going to be rising with our bodies as well just like Christ died and rose so when Christ rose from the dead they managed to see him they managed to feel him he managed to talk with him. So it wasn't like spirits floating. Christ was a real body that they managed to, to see. Not that we're going to be eating like him. He ate just to demonstrate a point. Not that we're going to have scars just like Christ had, but he did that just to demonstrate a point. But we're going to have a body, uh, a special form. So we're going to rise with our bodies. Different bodies, non-defective bodies, but still, not just a spirit, but a spirit and a body. So we will be restored complete again. Not just indefinite, impersonal, floating spirits. No, you're going to have. You're going to be able to know me. You're going to be able to know Michael, you're going to know Miriam, you're going to know Matthew. You're going to be able to know people as they are, but in the glorified person. You'll think and say, Miriam, my goodness, what a saint you are. And you'll see people in the glorified form. So it's going to be going to rise with our bodies. And this is what makes this resurrection the ultimate hope. Final note. And this is where the 27 slides that are coming. No, 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 don't be scared, don't be scared. I'm just going to pick two or three of them. 
So you might tell me, you might ask me, we'll turn it around. You might ask me, okay, great. I'm going to have hope in resurrection. But I'm living a miserable life here. Is that the hope? The hope and then I'm just going to have to swallow my life in the hope of resurrection? I'll tell you more. There's something that... Our church believes in. Okay? Now we're going into something that is beyond our pay grade, but gonna pray for me when we talk about these things because these things are things that customarily people that have not experienced it should not be talking about. But I want to talk to you about it because this changes the concept of salvation completely and the concept of godliness completely and the concept of sanctification completely. So the hope in our existence is not just waiting until we rise from the dead. The hoping, the hope in our existence is to become one with Christ. Okay? You might think, okay, What's, why, why this big introduction, pray for me and all this drama? Because there is a doctrine in the Orthodox Church which is called the doctrine of divinization or theosis. And this is the real hope. Resurrection of the body is one stage in the process of becoming one with God. Of becoming one with God. Or becoming, becoming godly. So, I'm going to tell you a few notes about what I'm trying to tell you. It's a very big topic, but I just want to, get a, to tickle your minds about the idea of divinization or deification, or becoming godly, or becoming one with God. You might think, but this is really sanctification. No, it's, sanctification is part of it. Becoming godly is becoming one and the same with God. Sometimes we think that our union with God is a moral union. I love him, he loves me. It's like we are just holding hands. But the fathers say that when we partake of the Eucharist, like Michael said, when we are baptized, we intermingle with, not with the body only. So when we take the body of Christ, do we take Christ's body only or body and humanity only or humanity and divinity? Both. Both? Why do you say both? Because you, you can't divide. Exactly. You cannot separate them. You cannot separate them. Abuna prays before he, they give you that, says that his humanity parted not from his divinity. One moment or twinkle of an eye. Yes, remember this just before when you're lying down. I know that sometimes you just doze a bit when you're lying down. When you're prostrating, but this is what Abuna says. So it has to be humanity and divinity. So when you are partaking of the body of Christ, you're not taking just a body, you're taking humanity and divinity. So you are, the humanity and divinity of Christ becomes one with you. And that's why the fathers call this transformation theosis or divinization or godliness or becoming gods with a small g becoming gods with a small g so the first one who brought this we always talk about Saint Athanasius who says that God became man in order for man to become have you heard this statement God became man in order for man to become God 
But he was not the first one who brought this concept. The first one who brought this concept was another Egyptian, St. Irenaeus, in the, at the end of the second century, he said, Our Lord Jesus Christ, who did, through his transcendent love, become what we are, that he might bring us to even what he is himself. So he wants us, by becoming one of us, he wants us to become like him. So St. Athanasius said what? And he manifested himself by a body that we might receive the idea of the unseen father. That's in the book, in the incarnation of the word, uh, the, the reason for incarnation or on the incarnation. And he endured the insolence of men that we might inherit immortality. So this immortality that we have, this immortality that we're going to get from resurrection is not a gift Okay, you've been good, here you go, some immortality. The immortality that we get, so we're not going to die again, is mainly or merely due to us intermingling with the immortal Christ. So it's not like a reward, it's a result of us becoming one with him. So the biblical basis for this idea of divinization or deification is what Christ said in St. John chapter 17, let us make in our image, uh, in, in Genesis 1, let us make in our image and in our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea. So the Bible tells us that when we were created, we talked about image and likeness last time we were talking about freedom, that one essential part of our being is freedom because we take that from our creator, we become free like our creator. One of the other things that we are like our creator is being creators as well. So the plan is like that. God's plan is like that. Ask you one question, a tough question. Do you think that if man, I don't like the hypothetical question, what do you think, if or not, but anyway, I'll ask you this question, see what you think. If man had not sinned, would Christ have incarnated? No? Okay. Anybody says yes? Well, no. <laughs> he came with a purpose. I think it was, wasn't it because of our sin that he came? Okay. Like, give us an avenue, a refuge from this sin. So what's the, what was the main reason for incarnation? What do we say in the creed? For us, what do we say in the creed? Yes? Okay. And was incarnate. So he was incarnate for? Our salvation. What's before that? Us. Us. So what does it mean? Why did they say for us men and for our salvation? For our salvation. He was incarnate and became man. So why for us? Because we're different. We, could, we have the capacity to be a different, different to men. So if, if, if incarnation was just for salvation. Okay. So what is the purpose of incarnation? I mean, what you're saying is if man did not sin, God will not have incarnated. Isn't that what you're saying? I'll tell you that the fathers say yes. Okay? So St. Um, Thomas Aquinas from the Catholic Church, say, um, recently Abbot Trifon from Man Athos, they say that Christ would have incarnated. Okay? 
and lots of other fathers were telling you just a couple of names. But why? Why do they say that? Why do they say that Christ would have incarnate just the same? If incarnation was just to save us from sin or to pay the price of our sin, then we would have said, and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnated, was whatever, he became man, and so on and so forth. But what do we say for us then and for our salvation? Maybe because we, we can be something other than man. Exactly, exactly. You're absolutely right. So what they say is that the reason for the incarnation of God is not just to pay the price for our sin, to save us by his death on the cross, but he had to incarnate. Forget about the hypotheticals, but I'm talking to that reality and that us as is. That the main aim for incarnation is not just for Christ to pay the debt, a judicial type of payment. The main aim of the incarnation is for us to be restored to the main purpose of our creation. The main purpose of our creation is to become godly, to become sons of God, to become immortal. This process, which started by creation and was interrupted by sin, was restored by becoming one with Christ. So Christ became man not just to pay the debt, which is a very Western type of punitive judicial type of thought. In the Orthodox thinking, Christ became man for us to become one with him. So Christ became man in order to deify flesh, in order for us, the flesh, to be deified. Christ came to make the flesh holy, to make man holy, in order for man who has sinned to become holy again. It's a bit tough. I'll just read you a few things. Um, St. Peter says, this is one crucial um, verse from, from 1 Peter. Uh, from Second Peter uh, chapter 1. He says what? This is the crucial verse that uh, we wrote today in, the, in the, the introduction to the topic. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and God goodness. So God called us by his glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises. Okay? All easy stuff. He's given us promises. Promise that we will be resurrected. Okay, good. So that through them, his knowledge, his promises, you can be partakers of the divine nature. So he's saying that by the promises, we can partake. You know what partake means? We can become, participate in Christ's nature. Not just befriend Christ, not just love Christ, not just know Christ, not just talk about Christ, but become the same nature as Christ. And you can see this godliness or this deification in people that Christ met. This godliness, this supernatural powers that Christ had, this luminousness that Christ had, you see it in people that are mere mortals of flesh like ourselves because they connected with Christ. So when you see St. Peter walking on the water, humans are not made to walk on water. But by connection, when he told me, he, he asked him, order me to come to you, to walk to you. So St. Peter touched on this theosis or deification. When he connected with Christ, he was able to walk on the water like Christ. When Christ connected with Elijah and Moses on the Transfiguration Mountain, they had the same luminousness as Christ. So the fathers are telling us, 
that when St. Paul talked to us in Corinthians, he says, And we, who, we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness. So our life on earth, by partaking of the Eucharist, by baptism, by knowing Christ, by spending time with Christ, we get transformed, we get deified, we get divinized, we become one into the Trinity. We become embedded into the Trinity. Some people say, one of the fathers say, we are not, I might have told, just told you that, that when we become one with Christ through the sacraments, not only we have a moral connection, we have a hypostatic connection. We become into the person of the Trinity, become one with Him. And that's what Christ was saying in John chapter 17, that I want them to become one with you as I and you are one, or one with us as I and you are one. So just like Christ is one with the Father, when we continue to be transformed through our spiritual life and through the sacraments of the church, we become one with the Trinity. And this hope, this theosis, this divinization, this ultimate oneness with the Trinity, yes, it will never be completely fulfilled except in heaven. But it starts and continues progressing here on earth. And that's why our hope is not just a hope when we die and rise, but our hope is a hope that starts today and now. Because at every single moment, we can become godly, and we can transcend time, and we can transcend death, and we can perceive unbroken love. We can even connect with beings that are unseen. And we can perceive the ultimate victory of good over evil when we connect with Christ today and now, not just, not just during resurrection. So listen to this one. As Christians, we are called to be more than good people. Or even glorified beings like angels. So we're not called to be just righteous, loving people, doing some charity work, feeding the poor. We're called, we called to more than that. We're not even called to more to become more than angels. More than angels. We are called into the fellowship of love that is the Trinity itself. God created us not to have a moral union with Him, by, but a hypostatic one, to become into the person of the Trinity. Just finally, I just want to uh, um, uh, uh, tell you just a couple of quotes by um, um, St. Athanasius. He said that theosis, or our ultimate hope, is becoming by grace what Christ is by nature. So what Christ is, the fullness of Christ, every single thing that Christ does or able to do as men, we, by grace, by adoption, can achieve. Can, can you kind of perceive how unbelievable that is? How can you, I mean, it is just like when somebody tells you that you are You've got the power of your, the incredible Hulk, and we are just having difficulty lifting up our pants. We are called to become Christ-like in everything, 
And we have the potential. We have been created for this purpose. We have been created by, with the potential to attain or to become every single that Christ is. Christ himself said that in, in, in John chapter 14, verse 12. He said, whoever believes in me will be able to do all the things that I do and can do greater things. So not just being able to forgive and not judge, but we have the potential to become like Christ, exactly like Him, exactly with His ability to love, exactly with the ability to forgive, exactly with the ability to sacrifice, exactly with His ability to become luminous, exactly with His ability to make miracles. All this is in us because we have been created in the image of God. The image of God is what we call synergy. The image of God is by creation. The likeness of God is by volition, is by willing. Yes. Is it something we can ever attain completely? We can never attain completely unless we get into heaven. But we can continue in the process of attaining it here on earth. And this is by trying to use every single moment to become godly. Because sometimes we think that, which is also a Western thought, is that our decision-making or our job is just to be good moral people selfless forgiving righteous and make the right decision that's it but our decision is not just simply that our decision is one of the uh, uh, fathers Justin Pavlovich he said that every day and in every way to become one with Christ and this is something that we have to decide all the time we were um we were, uh, Faith and uh, Emma and I and, and Ruth were attending a, a Harry Potter um, musical on Saturday. It was on Sunday, which was really nice. It's, uh, you see the movie and then you've got the concert playing it. And uh, it was Goblet of Fire? Goblet of Fire. So there was one, one uh, um, uh, so come um, Dumbledore, Dumbledore is talking to Harry Potter. So he's telling him that now comes the time where we have to decide between what's right and where there is a line. Remember the line? Yeah, because it was a Christian thing. I slept half a thing. I like sleeping concerts. I have to do it. Yeah, they keep nudging me wake up. So Dumbledore is telling Harry Potter that in every moment there will come a time when you have to decide between what's right and what's easy what's right and what's easy. And these decisions that we have to make every single moment. What's right and what's easy? You are thinking ultimate hope. You're thinking becoming one with Christ. You're thinking, I want to be Christ-like. I want to be godly. And there will come a decision every moment. What am I going to decide today? What's right and what's easy? What's divine or what's static? What's godly, what's ungodly? This decision you have to make. The easy is always the world, the friends, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, the food, the sleeping long, the talking long, and the hard but trite is pushing itself. I don't feel like praying, but I want to connect with Christ. I want to become godly. I want to become a son. I want to behave like a son. I want to be intrinsic, entrenched. My identity is in the Trinity. My identity is becoming godly. My identity is becoming is becoming not Christ, not I, but Christ who lives in me. That's my identity. The Son of God, Christ who lives in me. Christ is deified in me. 
I am a son of God. I'm, I am godly. And this is a decision that you have to make. There's always a time where you're going to decide. Every single moment of the day, you'll decide between what's right and what's easy. And often what's easy wins. Because it's very easy to go to sleep. It's very easy not to fast. It's very easy not to abstain. It's very easy and beautiful to have a relationship outside marriage. It's very easy to go to a nightclub because there's peer pressure. These are all easy. It's very easy not to, to shy out from talking with your friends about Christ. It's very easy. Oh, I don't want to be uncomfortable. I want to be easy. I feel, I have come a time, like Dumbledore say. There will come a time where you have to decide between what's right and what's easy. And hopefully we'll all decide what's right. And glory be to God forever. So, um, any questions about theosis? I'm sure that it ha- there has to be some questions there. Or about the resurrection, about the bodily resurrection. Any um, kind of objections or ideas or clarifications or, um, or kind of uh, rebuttals? All good? No questions? I was going to say, um, what, what was the term? Theosis? Yes. So, like, what is it in terms of like, how we see theosis? Look, um, there is a little bit, a good question, Matthew. Um, there is a bit of controversy in the church, in our church now, about the idea of theosis. And the reason that there's a bit of controversy about that, theosis is that some people misconceive some writings of Father Matthew the Poor and, uh, um, uh, and uh, uh, Bishop uh, uh, Epiphanius that theosis means partaking of Christ's nature and becoming like a, a god with a capital G. But like St. Athanasius said, it is simply becoming what Christ is by nature, we become by grace. So it is intrinsic to him to become God. But we can become godly, we can attain the same energies, but not the essence, not the substance of him, but the, 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 the blessings of him, the graces of him, by connecting with him. Just like, I'm not the owner of the factory, but you're going to give me the key to the factory. This is not my key, but you're going to give me the key because... We're friends because we love each other. So here you go to go get the key or you get my ring and you can sign on anything on my behalf. I'm not the owner of the factory, but you've given me the authority. Same thing. We become what Christ is by grace, what he is by nature. Just like what? Actually, I was talking to a friend of mine. He's an electrician, uh, an engineer. He told me, you know what uh, this sounds like? Uh, his name is George. I told him, no, no, what, George, what does it He said... It's like induction energy. Have you heard of induction in physics? You know what induction is? You, you know electricity? Engineering. So you know what I'm talking about. So induction means if you've got a source, if you've got a source of, um, of electricity, okay? This source has got a field, okay? You might be able to, if I kind of stumble, you just correct me. So this source has got a field. And if a proper conductor, like a nice piece of metal, goes into this field, it becomes electrified, and it has the same field coming out of it. Okay? It might be easier if I have a, a whiteboard. Now imagine you've got a source. The source has got field. In physics, you see it like that. I know lots of you guys have escaped physics. Um, but yeah, you see kind of the, the field... And like kind of circles coming out of the source. If you get a conductor and you put it within the field and leave it for some time, this conductor, this piece of metal, has its own field. So it's the same thing. 
if we, we are in the field of Christ, the field of grace of Christ, in the knowledge of Christ, if we partake of within, we become partakers of his nature, and we have the same powers, the same luminousness, the same ability to forgive, the same ability to love as him. Not because we have the same nature, we have no source, we're not the source. We just in the, 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 the field of the source. Yes. Then how can you say that you are embedded within the Trinity and you become one with the Trinity because you will never be the source? I will never be the source, okay? But I'm not going to be one in the Trinity or else it's not going to be Trinity anymore. So it's not going to be like the fourth member of the Trinity, okay? Because I don't have the nature. But I'm going to be embedded in the field of the Trinity, in the effect of the Trinity in the power of the Trinity, or what we call, they call in Greek, energia, the energy of the Trinity, the grace of the Trinity. So I'm going to be part of the Trinity, so I'm going to be a small g, not a big g. I'm going to have the same ability, which is effectual now. That's why we see saints being able to make miracles. They're not able to make miracles because they become God, but because God has imparted through His grace, His energy on them, in which case they can say, you can see, we can see... Uh, 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 people making miracles. They, they also say that St. Mary is the epitome of, of Theosis because she physically became one with Christ when he was in her tummy. They, one of the, 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 the fathers say that St. Mary is the source of luminousness where the angels take the light from her. So we're not going to be part of the, the essence. They say that, of course, all these things are things beyond our uh, kind of ability to comprehend and and, and to discuss, uh, kind of God have mercy on us. But they say the nature, nature of godliness is two things. An essence, osea, and energy, energia. The essence is what God is. And we're never going to be part of that. But we're going to be part of his energy and his power embedded in it. So embedded in the field, which is part of his existence. Mm. Any other questions? All good? Yes? Glory be to God forever. Amen.